This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This is a podcast hosted by Waikato Environment Centre or Go Eco. We are a voice for the Taio environment, a centre for aqua learning and a catalyst for change. Hipuna Kōrero shares the aspirations and mahi of our team and community as we work towards a vision of healthy environments and thriving communities. Sanctuary Mountain Mangatauteri is an inland island with a 47-kilometre-long predator-proof fence, which means the native Taonga species inside that is thriving and as close as we can get to pre-settlement. It's also a sign of how things will be as we move closer to the predator-free 2050 goal. Sanctuary Mountain was nominated for two accolades in the Virtual New Zealand Tourism Industry Awards last week, the Department of Conservation Award and Community Engagement Award, which they won. Freeman Edu, Marketing Manager for Sanctuary Mountain, joined us last week to talk about the project, the value of their volunteers, and to welcome us back for a visit. You can whakarongo listen to that podcast from freefm.org.nz or from your favourite podcast platform. Search for Hipuna Kōrero. You'll also find our podcast in a tab at the top of the Go Eco Waikato Facebook page. E tenera, Harvey Orton is the community organiser for both Predator Free Hamilton and Project Echo. He is also an outdoor instructor, poet, ecological anthropologist and artist, which is something we only recently discovered about him. Most of us want to know uh, what we can do to help protect our Taonga species, so I'd like uh, Harvey or you to tell us about the citizen science projects you're involved with here in Kirikiriro. But first, um, can you tell us a bit about your background? Kia ora, yep, I can, good morning. Um, My background comes from outdoor education, so I started training as an outdoor instructor in 2010. Um, I grew up in the mountains in the UK, then moved to New Zealand, and I still use my grandfather's ice axe. Um, I travelled Southeast Asia doing outdoor education, spending as much time in the mountains as I can and then eventually came back to New Zealand to do my degree in psychology and anthropology at Waikato University. So um, so just um, on that, when you say the mountains where you grow up, what, what do they look like? Is it similar to anything we have here in Aotearoa? Uh, no, because Britain cleared all the trees from the mountains so it's all craggy and kind of... Um, I guess the closest thing in, in New Zealand would be central Otago where the trees have been cleared as well and it's craggy and grassy and yellow okay. and um, but nothing in the Waikato like uh, Pirongia and the Kaimais are all forested. All the forests in the UK are gone. They chop them down to graze sheep. Um, they're beautiful in their own way but it doesn't look like it does here. Um, but then other mountains, like the Himalayas, are just huge. So the only thing you have here that's close to that is the Southern Alps, but even they are about half the size of the Himalayas. So mm. it's it's a different experience to live there. Um, I grew up rock climbing, whitewater kayaking, mountaineering, um, looking for birds. Uh, my favorite bird is a red kite, which lives in North Wales, where my family comes from. Um, 
And what makes that your favourite bird? Um, I remember seeing it when I was young, being driven to... There's a farm in central Wales, which is a conservation farm. They feed the red kites every day and tourists can go and see the red kites because they did almost go extinct. Um, they're on the bounce back now. But they're bright red and you can see them against the sky and they're kind of similar to the kahu here um, but they've got more of a kind of bright fiery color to them and they're a bit faster and I just remember seeing them and being blown away by them um, and then moving to New Zealand or Aotearoa um, my favorite place in this country is the central plateau so Rupehu, Narahoi um, and Tongariro uh, most people know Narahoe as Mount Doom, but I Why just... Why is that? I haven't heard that. Because it is Mount Doom. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in the Lord of the Rings films... Oh, I would never clone, yeah, never seen the movie. The Lord of the Rings films, when Frodo and Sam, for people who have seen them, are climbing up to the top of the mountain to throw the ring in the fire, which is the kind of end bit, they're on Narahoe. That's okay. the mountain they're on. So, um... But I love them because they're volcanoes. I remember driving down from Tomaranui and just seeing volcano the Narahoe come out of the, the ground as like a cone. And I just remember being blown away by that and it's my favourite place in the world still. I've been oh, to wow. a few places, but it's my favourite place in the world. And it informs most of what I do in terms of um, writing and poetry and art is my love of the mountains and the rivers particularly rivers and mountains and white water and then the animals that live around those places so it's kind of informs everything I do and the way people are in the mountains because I'm interested in the psychology of the brain and other things um, so the way people behave in the mountains is very different to the way people behave in everyday life and what are the behaviours that you observe or that you, well, you, know, you think are different there? Um, within a very short time, natural human smells become com entirely acceptable rather than perfume and deodorant. <laughs> um, makeup disappears very quickly. There's very few um, women who wear makeup in the mountains if they're on an expedition longer than, say, four days. Um, the best example I've had of that is a teenager who came on a, an expedition with me for two weeks and she brought what can only be said is an unhealthy amount of makeup with her. <laughs> and she was, uh, I don't know what the term is really, but I guess donning it, ma making her face every morning for the first three days. <laughs> making then, her face. Yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> I've got you. <laughs> yeah. I, my partner doesn't wear makeup, so this is... This is uh, I haven't live with anyone who actually puts on makeup very much for the last eight years so but she was doing it every day and then she fell in a pool of mud and laughed about it and then it's just stopped immediately oh, like wow. she suddenly realized in unconsciously subconsciously that it didn't matter and i always found that bizarre that kind of behavior um i find that people aren't aware of how far they can push their body until they go tramping or or um, doing something that's really hard where they want to succeed so client doing the Tongariro crossing would be an example. I've done it with people who thought they could never do it, who feel like they're way too unfit. That's and, me right now. And actually, yeah. you can push your body way further than you think you can, and walking doesn't take that much um, aerobic energy, so you can keep breathing. If you're running, it's different. Running is hard. Like Running up a mountain is 
can can beat someone to the ground but walking you can actually as long as you get into a rhythm and something you can be comfortable with you can walk for hours without stopping you just have to have snacks and food in your pocket and and some a water bottle you can walk for hours but um, when you're talking about people don't understand how far they can go um, and how far their body can actually take them I mean, what is it that pushes people? Because I'm picturing people yelling, you can do this, and all that motivational yelling we see personal trainers do. Is that your experience of how people push through and get further than they thought they could? Um, no, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it does work. Like, it doesn't not work for people. Uh, I used to play rugby and, and cricket, and, and it does work. Like, it can push people. But in the mountains, it's a very different experience. So the mountains tends to be, in my experience, actually a personal a personal challenge you might be with people and it's you might be with people and um you might feel like you're a part of a team but at the end of the day when you sit down and have a cry at the top of the mountain (laughs) there's only one person who can figure out what to do about that and that's you so another example of that is someone who i won't name because if they do listen to this they'll be embarrassed but they sat on the top of pironga and had a good old cry and um, I just stood there and I was like, well, we got, we, you can't, you can't go, we've got to go down. Like, so we'll sit here until you're ready to go. And she just said, no, we, we have to stay here. And I was like, we can't sleep here. We don't have, we're not prepared to. So the only option we have is to go down. So we'll wait until you've calmed down and we'll carry on walking. <laughs> so there's no point shouting at someone like that because yeah. they're going to get mad at you, do something stupid, fall off a cliff or, so you just... They can cry for as long as they want. So it's, I guess it's accepting and, and letting them feel what they feel at, the, at that time. And yeah, there's no one else there. Mm. So it's not like they're crying on centre stage in, in some kind of school assembly or or something else horrific or having a meltdown on the radio, which I could in <laughs> five minutes. They're, they're, they're amongst Tui and Rata trees like and, and you. And so it's an awful cliche, but nothing that and you can say it in the horrible way that you can say like what happens in vegas stays in vegas but nothing in the mountains is real nothing you come back to real life mountain life for us it used to be real for people who lived in the mountains and made their money out of the mountains but most people don't 80 percent of people live in cities so when you go to the mountains it's not real life (laughs) it's it's getting away it's escapism so just let the person deal with it and at the end of the day you go you go back down the mountain and then you go to the pub or you go to a fish and chip shop and you talk about all the things you do in normal life and you talk about how hard it was and how you've achieved something and you, and the fact that that person has been blubbering on the top of a mountain no longer matters mm-hmm. and it becomes part of the achievement because it sounds a bit broken but I mean it in a well-meaning way if you're having a breakdown on top of a mountain then you have achieved more than someone who's found it easy. And it's it's not meant to be condescending, but someone who's unfit and, and, and is doing something that's really hard for them always impresses me more mm. than someone who is doing it but actually isn't pushing themselves. Or who didn't try. Or didn't need to try. Mm-hmm. Or uh, So there are different levels of... Um, sorry. Um, different levels of challenge in the mountains and so I ice climb or I used to most people don't ice climb yeah no nah. but <laughs> but most people find walking up a rocky ridge where they have to use their hands and scramble hard 
whereas I don't. I can do that at a running pace. So, like, it's... I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a little bit of that on Pironga if you get up to kind of Ruapane level. I did look at that right? last night, actually, yeah, for my next little, challenge. There's yeah. a little bit of that. It's not It's not huge, but it's... it's a, a taster? Yeah, it's a taster to something that is harder. But, um, but yeah, so that's kind of my upbringing and then also my kind of philosophy and the other thing is I'm not really a subscriber to again this can sound bad but I'm not really a subscriber of people staying in their comfort zones and I think that staying in your comfort zone is dangerous because you never try anything new and so my philosophy is was given to me by a, my first actual employer as an outdoor instructor he told me um, he told a student and I was there to see it that I just want you to go as far as you can and then one step further. So as far as you can think you can go, and this was actually in climbing, so it was climb up as far as you can and then one move further. So that means you've taken yourself out of mm. your comfort zone. And what actually happens is that when they make that one move further, sorry, when they make the one move further, you realize you can make another move further. And that one move wasn't actually the end of the world. So that's kind of my philosophy is don't stay in your comfort zone go to the edge of your comfort zone and then go one step further one and step that further. is how the exhibition happened yeah and, and you, <laughs> you, you did touch on this before um about your inspiration behind some of your work but recently you held your first exhibition Worldiverse at never project space which is in frankton uh, just down the road from goeco can you describe some of those pieces and tell us about the inspiration behind them um so I start with the inspiration because I guess it's the story behind how it actually happened which is I am a I'm a published poet but I, I, I want to be careful not to call myself a poet because I don't I don't do it full time or I don't do it there are people out there that I know that write poetry and submit it every single day and, and spend their life trying to be poets I don't really do that I do it on the side and um publish what I can and publish what I want um, so I've been doing that and I got a little bit fed up of the written word not being considered an art form in the same way that other art is so you see I love street art for example and there's a, one of the inspirations was a piece done by well, I'm going to forget his name but it's in, it's in Hamilton Michael Moore Mm. which is on the wall Fantastic of... Fantastic spoken word artist. Yeah. yeah, which is on the wall of a building on Anglesey Street. And it's a piece of poetry, and it's been put in and design. And so that was part of the inspiration, because it, it showed me that it could be done. And then Never Project Space released a kind of Facebook thing saying, email us with a proposal. And I was like, well, I could do it. I mean, I... I I'll, I'll write a proposal and I didn't think of anything of it and then they said yes <laughs> and then uh -oh. and at that point I either have to say and this is where the comfort zone comes in and I either have to say this is what I want to do but I'm not going to go outside of my comfort zone or I have to say this is what I want to do the one step further is to say yes and then I'm committed and once I say yes to something I really don't like going back on it um we, we work together and you know I yeah. don't like saying that. Um, <laughs> That's why you're here right now. Yeah, yeah precisely. And this is another step because I've always enjoyed podcasts and things like this. So doing it is a, is a second thing. And I'm like on edge 
the whole time <laughs> but that's fine because that's what you do you go to places that you're uncomfortable with to try it and if you absolutely have a disaster you don't have to do it again and that was my experience with the exhibition was that if it is an absolute disaster I disappear into the wilderness again how would you think it was a disaster what would I mean how do you know that or do you feel it was a success how would you measure that I mean, art is subjective. I mean, what, are they, what does that look like for you? Um, the first point of success was me being happy with the room. Like, uh, the first point of success was filling a room of my, my ideas and my um, artwork and my words and feeling like I'm happy with that. I look at mm. that and I feel like it's a body of work that I can be proud of. Um, that was up in the air for a little bit there because I, I wasn't finished with the work when a month before it was due and I also was drawing on the floor doing some of my cartography kind of art insp cartography inspired art half an hour before it opened so that was up in the air but eventually I was happy with that um, I set myself another goal which is a little bit potentially pretentious but <laughs> I wanted to make it apolitical so I didn't want to make any statements in it so any I wanted it to be about the natural world about the things I find beautiful the things I find inspirational without it being a big statement about what people should think or what people should do or what people should be so and I broke that rule with one piece which um, is about climate change but um, tell us about that one <laughs> oh, it's Go Eco it's, uh, um, our, yeah so our, it's, our, it's our work everyone at Go Eco knows that I love bats <laughs> um, yeah. everyone who has met me knows that I love bats um, and I watched a documentary which is a, a brilliant docu-series which is Nature in the City um, which is a series about cities worldwide and I was watching it and I uh, one of the things with my artwork is the words always come first so I was a words person first and then kind of wanted to put colours and shapes to that those words so I was watching that and it was about flying foxes in Adelaide of all places so this isn't about this isn't about the local area but um, flying foxes in Adelaide live on the river and they've come into the city because the city has expanded and it's it's taken in their landscape and it's taken in their environment um, but one thing that's happened during climate change is that Australia has got hotter and hotter and hotter to the point where bats in Adelaide are no longer resting all day they actually have to become active and they have to go and fly across the oh, river okay. and so people can see bats in daylight in Adelaide and that's not really normal like you can see them in trees during the day because they're big like flying foxes if anyone goes and googles them will find that they're pretty big beasts but they usually just hang from the tree all day but in Adelaide they've started having to fly across the river and 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 do what's known as front dipping which again you can YouTube but it's like flying along because they bats can't land they have to fly they can either hang from something or fly so they they fly along the edge the 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 top of the water and they they dip their bodies into the water and take drinks 
they wouldn't normally do that in daylight, but because it's got so hot and because the climate is getting so hot, they are starting to do that more and more. And also during the bushfires that were definitely spurred on by climate change and also just mismanagement, bats died in their thousands. So I wrote a poem about that and it wasn't going to be in my exhibition. Um, but then it ended up being in my exhibition. And I didn't make any statement that it was about climate change or it was about thing. It's really about bats and how cool they are. But um, Do you have it here to read to us? <laughs> yeah, it's right in front of me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I don't remember it off by heart, so I'm going to have to read it from the, the actual piece of art which is in front of me. Okay. Um... And I don't actually remember the title of it, I'm sorry. But, so, untitled, I guess. A bolt out of the dark. Pons means foot. Information. Park design space. Front dipped in tumbled currents. Tero, frying, frying, means heated wings. It's a short one, but it's just a piece that plays on the Latin word for bats. So pons means foot in Latin, and tero means wing. So teroporus, which is a flying fox, is winged foot. That's what oh. it means. Um, front dipping is mentioned. Uh, information park design idea is actually a, a kind of nod to Adelaide's authorities who have actually been quite clever and decided that they're going to protect the trees alongside the river for the bats to live very in. good idea yeah so um it's it's a short one it's actually based on a japanese theme of poetry which i can't remember the name of so i won't try and explain um but it was kind of probably the last piece i wrote and it was the last piece that was included but it's the only one that touches on anything political or anything. We wouldn't judge you if the whole thing was political. Yeah, I know, but, <laughs> yeah. but it's the only one that does because I didn't want it to be entirely political. I wanted it to be a showcase of uh, the things I experience and the things that I find wonderful in the world and the things that I want to shape into art and into the things that inspire me. So other pieces are inspired by maps. I love maps. And I love kind of semi-invented maps. So I took this idea that I would look at the topo map for New Zealand, look at different mountains or different places. So the, the one I was thinking of is the Kaimais. And I, I, I went to spend the night in a tent at the top of Wairiri Falls off track. And I wrote a poem there, which I don't have with me, um, but is published in a recent anthology called Up Flynn Road, which is um, which was written for charity. Um, and I, I drew the start of the map and then I started inventing. And, and so those are my favourite pieces. Things that come from objective reality, come from the world itself. Javi, uh, we could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> We've yeah. got two minutes left. We haven't answered any of the questions can you come back another time? Yeah. So, um, like, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've worked with you for about a year, and I, f uh, I find your thought process and, and the way that you uh, the way you look at things intriguing. 
and I'm sure those who are listening do, especially now we've heard a bit more about your background and how that has influenced your art. So how about we, you come again another time and we talk about your work at Go Echo um, and, and develop that further now that we've um, <laughs> gone through your background. And also now everyone's going to know that I, I talk a lot. No, I, no, no. It, like it's great and I'm sure other people have been intrigued to hear and understand it. I mean, I grew up in a completely different world of view, not active, not in the mountains, the um, Southland, which is very flat, not much happening there. And so it's really interesting for me to hear um, about people who come from, you know, their, their connections with the environment is different. And as you know, I'm uh, pushing myself a little bit with some walks at the moment and did the Hakri Matas recently. And to me, I had spent two years thinking I couldn't. So when you're talking about um, always pushing yourself a bit further, that really resonated. Um, and I'm going to do the um, Ruapani lookout soon, yeah, very cool. soon. And I'm sure that, um, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know about that when we've done that. So, um Thank you for joining us today, Harvey. Really appreciated that. I will come back. I'll do it again. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not that worried about talking on, on a mic. Not at all. Yeah. Um, it's been awesome to have you in. Kete Fokaronga Mai Kweki Puna Kordero, a show hosted by Go Eco Wakato. Go Eco Wakato Environment Centre are a not for profit environment hub with biodiversity, kai, transport, and enterprise projects. You can find out more about our work on social media, Go Eco Wakato, by heading to our website, goeco.org.nz, or better yet, popping in to 188 Street, Frankton and Kitty Kitty Raw. Join us again next week for a new episode, but make sure you follow or subscribe to Hipuna Kōrero on your favourite podcast platform so you don't miss an episode. Kia pai tōra, ihoa Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out more.